Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I've been living here in Allentown for almost four years now, and uh, I have said before that I was over my Philly sports obsessions. I'd like to retract that statement, if I may, as my voice bears witness. Uh, I can't survive too many more 10th inning home runs. Um, But anyway, it occurred to me halfway through my screaming fit that I do have to speak on Sunday, so I need to be more careful, I guess, this week. Um, I don't miss Philly a lot of the time, I've discovered, but I I do kind of miss watching the World Series there. Uh, There is something, there's nothing really like the, the, the sense of community when your team is winning, right? And part of the reason why that is is that we live vicariously through our heroes, Uh, And somehow these 25 men, whose names I didn't really fully memorize until the last couple of weeks, uh, somehow they have come to represent us as Phillies fans, right? And last week we we talked about what makes a dream team. And I observed that the Phillies have been making me ask that same question for weeks because the same players that have been, you know, we've been praising in these recent days are the same ones we criticized for many months before that. And yet here we are watching them in the World Series So how did the Phillies become a dream team? Uh, Well, it seems like their fortunes turned when they fired their manager earlier in the season. Uh, And when they did that, uh, Rob Thompson, the soft-spoken Canadian bench coach, suddenly became a Philadelphia legend, right? And he's a big big reason why he's so well-loved. It's not only that they're winning, but it's that he seems like one of us. And what I mean by that is if you've ever seen him, he, he's not, he's, he doesn't have a face for the camera. He, he looks more like a guy um, you would be watching the games with in a Northeast Philly bar. And so they've taken to calling him Philly Rob, and, uh, you know, it's working out well, right? And we love heroes that look like us. Uh, we like heroes that we can relate to and, uh, and, and who are one of the guys, right? Uh, and that's why, like, the Rocky movies were so popular, right? Uh, and it's why they make movies like Invincible about Vince Papali. Like, he barely even played, but he was a, an average schmo that managed to get onto the Eagles, so he's a hero to us, because he got there, right? We love relatable heroes. And now, we're looking at the Great Commission. We are going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, we're focusing on the hero of this story. Who's the captain of the team here? Jesus. Jesus, okay, very good. Uh, and, and we did observe last week that the, the team itself is a little lackluster, right? Um, and yet Jesus gives this great command to a not-so-great squad, right? Doesn't seem very practical, but that's how Jesus rolls. Uh, and in the kingdom, we're learning that it's not the players themselves that make the team work, Right, uh, The disciples are living proof that God could work with anything. No, what makes the kingdom work, the reason the Great Commission can be a great commission and not just a modest request, really comes down to the captain of the team. What will make this commission workable is the guy at the top, the hero. 
And, you know, Reverend Green was glad that I started to clarify that at the end of my sermon last week. Um, Jesus didn't actually delegate this task to a team or a committee. Jesus makes it clear that he's still going to be calling the shots. He's the one who's going to make things happen. Why did I say otherwise? Mostly because I like to razz David. Um, But what can we say about the team captain here in this passage? What kind of captain is this Jesus? He's been walking with these guys for three years. You think they know him pretty well. Uh, And now that we've reached the end of his earthly ministry, what have we learned about him? And and perhaps more to the point, what does he want us to know about himself here in the final analysis? And as Matthew's wrapping up his gospel account, he wants us to get this final picture of who this Jesus is. And it's interesting that Matthew leaves a lot of things out here. Uh, You know, he doesn't tell us everything that happened after the resurrection. He doesn't tell us about every interaction Jesus had with the disciples. Uh, He doesn't cover the ascension. Uh, He doesn't cover any of the times where Jesus, you know, stepped in and interrupted the disciples at dinner uh, down in Jerusalem or anything like that. He, He goes more or less right to this mountaintop scene in Galilee. Why does Matthew do that? Well, I think he's sticking with a consistent theme that he's been doing throughout his gospel. And, you know, no gospel writer can cover everything. They, they all have a particular angle. And Matthew's concern has always been to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. Uh, his gospel is considered the most Jewish of the gospels. Uh, So he's constantly referencing the Old Testament, and he tries to help us see Jesus as this Jewish Messiah. And he does that in part by highlighting the ways that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament pictures and shadows. So, for example, in Matthew 4, you'll read that Jesus went to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, right? And we're supposed to hear echoes of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, only Jesus does it better uh, because he doesn't complain. So we have Jesus as the, the, the new and better Israel. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus uh, says that something greater than the temple is here, and he's referring to himself. So we see Jesus as the greater temple, the fulfillment of the temple. Uh, we saw a couple weeks ago that when Jesus refers to himself as the rock, we talked about that, right? He presents himself as this fulfillment of the rock that provided water to the Israelites in the desert and also as the cornerstone spoken of so often in the Old Testament. So we saw this theme even from the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, even before Jesus said a word, we prefaced the whole series of the Sermon on the Mount by saying that Jesus was being presented to us as the new and greater Moses, because he's up there giving the law. But Jesus is better than Moses because he's not only the lawgiver, he's also the fulfiller of the law. So he goes up on a mountain just as Moses ascended Sinai, but it's also better because his law is even better and more complete, right? And and beyond that, unlike Sinai, where God's people were forbidden to touch the mountain at all on pain of death, including the animals, don't let your animals touch it, they will be struck, Jesus goes up there and invites his disciples to come right up and sit down at his feet. And it's a beautiful picture of a new reality, something new that God is doing here. And so in that Jewish context, I I think it it should get our attention when Jesus goes onto a mountaintop. Uh, The mountaintops are sort of the highlights, literally, right, of of Jesus' ministry, and, and they give a sort of snapshot of what he came here to do. And All but maybe one of these scenes takes place on a mountain by the Sea of Galilee. Matthew doesn't specify whether this is the same mountain in every story, but it's possible. And and even if it's not, the symbolism is kind of unmistakable. 
Uh, Jesus ascends the mountain several times over the course of his earthly ministry. The, uh, the first time was in uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, Jesus went up there to teach. So he teaches his people. He came to give and fulfill the law, to teach his people about it. In chapter 14, we're told that he went up on a mountain alone to pray. And, and he does that right after John the Baptist was killed, and, you know, that's his, his cousin, so I think it's safe to assume he was also dealing with some human emotions in there, but as the new and better Israel, even his sadness and his mourning takes on new meaning because it's something that he does for us. Uh, when he goes to the mountain to pray, he's sort of representing us to the Father, right? So he weeps and he cries out on behalf of a broken, suffering world that he's now a part of. In chapter 15, he ascends the mountain again, and this time he went up there to heal people. We read that he went up on the mountain, sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. They put him at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So that's sort of a double whammy there. Jesus came to heal his people and so that his father would be glorified. Then later on in chapter 17, a very unique scene takes place. Chapter 17, the beginning of it, says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I don't have time to get into that passage in a lot of depth. It's a unique scene. That's a, that's a whole separate sermon. Uh, but to give a short version of what he's doing up there, he is revealed in his glory, right? He appears with Moses and Elijah. He's sort of tying together the entire Old Testament into what's happening right now. And he demonstrates once again the, that he is the fulfillment of everything. And then God shows up in the glory cloud. And once again, the Father speaks and confirms, Jesus is my son. He commands everyone there to listen. The whole thing is kind of terrifying, but it ends very suddenly with Jesus kind of coming up to the guys and just sort of slapping them on the back and telling them, hey, be chill, it's just me. And they look up and it's like everything's over now, and it's like he's back to being one of the guys. It's weird, right? And now, here we are post-resurrection, right? And, and he has this final mountaintop scene that kind of caps the end of Matthew's gospel, and we see that not only did he do all these other things, he also came to give us our marching orders, right? Uh, he's come to give us purpose and vision as his people. Uh, and he does all these things on these mountaintops to benefit his people, to teach them, to pray for them, to heal, and to reveal his glory to them. And now he, he comes to do this pep talk for his disciples, his hand-chosen dream team. Uh, and it's the pep talk they've been waiting for. And he wants them to know something about himself, something that will drive ultimately, this new mission and vision. And it's something that's going to give his teaching more weight, and it's something that's going to give his prayers more of a power, that's going to make the healings more complete, it's going to demonstrate more fully his glory. 
Uh, not to mention, it gives the commission an awful lot more weight, too, because the order is coming from the top gun. This mission is not optional. There's no, like, if you choose to accept it clause in the Great Commission. And there's one verse, verse 18 here, that's so packed with meaning that I think it's worth looking at almost word by word because this is Jesus yanking off the mask and pulling out all the stops. He's revealing more in this verse than really would have been understood at the transfiguration. So listen now to what Jesus says, because this is our captain speaking, and if his disciples have understood nothing up until now, and we know that they're easily confused, right? This is what he wants them to know. Watch what he says here. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to pause, and before we even get to his words, I don't want you to miss what Jesus does physically in that verse. Matthew doesn't elaborate much on the scene here, but we know that the disciples were worshiping him. We saw that in the previous verses, right? And, and we know that silently some of them are doubting. And apparently this was happening while Jesus was still a bit further up on the hill, right? And in fact, it's not entirely clear, it's not worded that way, that the disciples even ascended the hill. They came to it. And the more I think about it, the more I wonder if they stayed down low. Because again, this is Matthew's theme, right? They have approached the holy mountain. Jesus is on the mountain like the new Moses and like you know, God's presence is on the mountain kind of thing. It's kind of scary. I don't know that they went up. But instead of pronouncing the new status of things from afar, like a politician on a soapbox, Jesus comes to them. He meets them partway. And that's such a gracious thing to do. Because we saw last week why these guys had every reason to keep their distance. You know, like not only is Jesus kind of scary in his resurrected Superman form, right? But they have also failed him miserably. It's been a bad month. They have no right to be on this mountain and they know it. They're keeping back the same way that my dogs avoid eye contact with me when they've been misbehaving. Sprocket does that kind of all the time because he's always bad. But sometimes it's the only reason I know he's been bad is when he's acting weird. Like if you would just fake confidence, dog, I wouldn't even know, you know? But the disciples, they hang back out of fear and reverence and awe and all of that stuff, but there's also a very heavy guilt, and it's not a false guilt. Uh, Pastor Stone often said, rightly, that, that false guilt and real, real guilt feel the same. You can't distinguish them, right? And, and we live in an age where false guilt is treated almost as a virtue. I think Americans are better at beating themselves up than any monk in a monastery or even a Calvinist. But, um, of course, the guilt that the disciples are feeling is not false, it's very legitimate. They come as failures with many doubts, their tails between their legs. And yet Jesus comes to them. He doesn't hold them at arm's length. He knows that they're hurting. He knows that they're spiritually crippled, that they are pathetic. And so Jesus comes to them. I don't want you to miss that. It's the psalmist that says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And I think this is Jesus living that out. 
Now, what does Jesus say when he gets there? What does he want him to know? Well, he doesn't really pat him on the back and say, there, there, fellas, everything's fine. He, but then again, he also doesn't beat them over the head for having doubts or being screw-ups or anything like that. He, he kind of skips most of the speeches we would typically give, in other words. He doesn't say a word about them, does he? Instead, he talks about himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just in case you're wondering who's in charge, who's the team captain, Jesus would like to clear that up real quick. This is not timid Jesus. This is not Mr. Rogers in sandals and a beard. And maybe it seems like a strange way to start your final speech to them, but the most important thing that Jesus needs them to know right now, to have front of your mind, is that he is large and in charge. Jesus is asserting his lordship. Jesus has authority. But what does that authority mean? How can we even comprehend of it? What do we know about authority in general? John Mellencamp says it always wins, so I know that much. <laughs> authority basically implies power, right? <clears throat> we kind of use those things a little bit interchangeably. Uh, and we all have some measure of authority that interacts in our lives, don't we? Um, some people have authority over us. Many more people have authority over us, it seems, right? Uh, we have bosses. We have the, the police and elected officials and well beyond, right? And when we say that we're going to call the authorities, right, we generally mean the cops, right? Some sort of government figure. Um, but we also all have some authority over something ourselves. I have some authority over my household. Some. I'm in a power-sharing agreement with Georgia. It's not always 50-50. I'll leave it to your imagination to who holds the greater share. But even my kids all have had the experience of exercising authority over their younger siblings, for instance, right? Gwen kind of gets the short end of the stick, but she more than compensates for that in other ways. <laughs> she even gets to be in charge of the dogs sometimes. I have some authority as your pastor. I have authority over my property and my finances, kind of. I mean, I can most of the time dispose of them as I see fit. And of course, none of this is very impressive authority, and it's not very extensive. Uh, just the point is, is that we're all familiar with authority on some level. We all experience it. Uh, but all authority, as we experience it, is partial and limited. Uh, your boss has authority to dictate your hours and your pay, uh, and he can fire you, right? But your boss can't tell you what to have for dinner tonight, right? There's a limit to the scope. I have the power to tell my kids how they must live in my house. Uh, I can tell them, we can tell them what's for dinner, uh, uh, who does the chores, all that jazz. Until they can pay their own way and move out, I have authority to kind of dictate their lives. But I can't control my children completely. My kids are suppressing an amen. For one thing, I can't keep an eye on them every minute of the day. 
So when I have authority, I don't have full power to exercise the authority, right? And, and another thing is that they can eventually get married and move out. Kind of hope they do. And on that day, my authority kind of ends because they've left my jurisdiction, right? And in the same way, like the government's authority is limited by how much, uh, for instance, how much police they have on the streets to actually enforce the law. And even then, in extreme cases, you could move permanently to like the Howard Cottages, right, in Canada. And the U.S. would lose all authority over you if you just stayed up there. Now, I'm not saying I recommend that. It's just an example. So the authority we experience is always limited in some capacity. But what does Jesus say about his authority? He says, all authority has been given to me. Not most authority, not sufficient authority, or spiritual authority, or the relevant and necessary authority, or even authority over the church. He claims all authority, period. He places no limits on it. There's not one qualifier in the statement. It's a bold statement. Nobody claims that kind of authority beyond a handful of dictators and psychopaths. The two categories tend to overlap a good bit. He-Man always declares, I have the power, but not even he claims to have all the power. After all, he almost loses to a skeleton in purple tights in every episode. <laughs> Absolute power, complete authority, is not even a thing we can comprehend. And yet Jesus says he has it. And he further clarifies that he holds this complete authority both in heaven and on earth. Now, on the face of it, the heaven part kind of makes a logical sense, doesn't it? Uh, we, we tend to assume that Jesus kind of has home field advantage up there, right? When Jesus speaks, we know that things in heaven move. And if he says jump, the angels say how high. We've heard this before. We know it. It's the second category that's a little more baffling. Jesus says that all authority, all authority on earth is his. I think that would be really hard for the disciples to understand and grasp and accept. Because they can look around and they can see Roman legions and even the Jewish ruling classes that are out to get them, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, not to mention the other pagan nations and empires around them, and they can look around and they can see the crime, and they can see the disease and the hunger and the leper colonies and everything else. There's plentiful evidence that the earth seems to be doing its own thing apart from Jesus' authority. And more to the point, I think it's hard for us to believe because we too can look at a world in rebellion, running away from Christ. We live in a culture that's poisoning itself on drugs and entertainment and sexual license. And we're living in a time where even the church seems so unfaithful so much of the time. And you can look at all that and say, well, like, well, in what way does Jesus have all the authority on earth? Do we believe this? 
If a loved one walks away from the faith, do we believe that Jesus still has all the authority on earth? If a loved one is suffering from an illness, if we're suffering from an illness, when we are wrestling with sin and temptation and we're losing, when wars rage and martyrs we hear are falling by the sword and wicked rulers reign, and when the culture seems to be collapsing and church attendance is down and the tithes aren't keeping up with expenses, do we believe that Jesus has all the authority on earth? This is probably the hardest thing for us to swallow. We hear Jesus say it, and we may believe it intellectually, and we can repeat it, but I don't know that we always see it. Where is Jesus when things seem to be going wrong? I can't answer all of the particulars this morning, but I think we have to take comfort in the fact that nothing ultimately can go wrong. If Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth, then nothing escapes his notice or his plan, and ultimately nothing is outside of the plan. We live with the reality that while Jesus has all the authority, he chooses not to exercise it in every instance, at least not in the way that we think he should. He is patient with rebellion when we would not be. He allows suffering to sanctify his people and to drive us back to him when we would much rather he spared us the difficulty. He lets sin reign in people's lives and hands them over to Satan, and that is to drive them to the cross when we would much rather he would find an easier way. And we also know from Scripture that there are competing powers to deal with. Paul speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and Jesus even calls Satan the ruler of this world on a couple of occasions. So we also know that there's a spiritual war on, but only one side has legitimate authority. And only one side will win. Once again, as the prophet John Mellencamp says, I fight authority, but authority always wins. But I wanted you to notice one other thing in this verse. And it's something kind of odd, but I think it's kind of key. Because Jesus says that this authority has been given to him. That's a temporal statement. Meaning something has changed. Something wasn't true, but it is true now. I say this is strange because it seems to me that Jesus has always had authority. That stands to reason, right? We have the benefit of hindsight, right? And we have the epistles and the creeds and the confessions. We know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal. He was with the Father in eternity past. The Apostle John says right in chapter 1 of his gospel that the world was made through him. Paul echoes that theme in Colossians 1. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the one through whom also he, the Father, created the world. 
He says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, knowing all this, tell me something. How can the Son of God, who created and sustains the world, gain any more authority than he already had? How does the one who has everything get even more? How does the king of the universe get a promotion? What has changed since the resurrection? And I think the answer lies in the dual nature of Christ. Jesus, as God, has always had all authority. What has changed now is that Jesus, the man, has all the authority too. Everything Jesus has done in his humanity, every limitation that he has accepted since he was born in that smelly stable, has now come to fruition. He has earned something. Jesus was always large and in charge, but he laid aside all that glory to become one of the little people. And without ceasing to be God, he became fully human, and he became our representative. Paul says that he's the new Adam. And now, we can truly say, when we look at the heavenly throne, that one of our guys is there. He's up there in the front. A guy who looks like us, a guy we can relate to. This idea first hit home with me a few years ago. I was reading a passage in a book by Jonathan Edwards called The History of Redemption. I actually bought the book used uh, on the strength of this one passage as I was flipping through it, and I didn't bring it with me. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but Edwards is basically he's painting a picture of the judgment day. And he's talking about the fate of Satan and who will be destroyed on that day, right? And he says, almost in passing, that Jesus will judge Satan in his human nature. That when Jesus pronounces judgment on Satan and has final victory over his enemies, he will do so as one of us. He will do it as a man. In our stead, on our behalf, for us. In other words, he will do what the first Adam should have done. He will do what we have lost the ability to do. Now, I don't want to overplay my baseball analogies, but maybe a little. I said that the Phillies manager is popular in part because he looks like such a normal guy. The same thing applies to players, too. So I saw a story online this week <clears throat> from a Phillies sports blog called Crossing Broad, and the headline was, Bryce Harper, he's just like us. And the whole story boiled down to this. A girl spotted him at Trader Joe's in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, shopping with his wife and son. And the opening line of the little blog post was this, the guy hits the biggest home run of the postseason, and he's still shopping for his own bananas. Bryce Harper is no different than you and I. And yet, he's actually quite a bit different than us, isn't he? <laughs> None of us can do what he does. We don't have that kind of power. So we need him to go do it for us. We need him to go face the best pitchers in the league and hit the clutch home runs and rally the crowd. But we also want him to stay relatable. 
Those are the heroes we like best. We want a hero who will feel like one of the guys, but who ultimately will put the whole team, and if necessary, a whole city on his back. We want a hero who can stick it to our opponents and bring home the trophy. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what he did on Calvary. This Jesus is the same guy they've been traveling with for three years. He eats and drinks and sleeps like the rest of them, right? He has to relieve himself. He's a man. He's clearly the leader, but he's also clearly one of the guys, kind of, right? But in this moment, Jesus is announcing that he has put us on his back. He has defeated the enemy and brought home the trophy. His authority is an earned authority. And you start to realize it makes sense, you know, even when Paul gives that funny little passage about how, like, don't you know one day we're going to judge angels? It's like, that doesn't even make sense, right? But the only way we could ever set foot in the courtroom is that the judge happens to be one of our guys. And he has finally done what Adam failed to do. He crushed the head of the serpent. He has seized the dragon and bound him, and he did it as one of us. It's so cool. And that's why Paul says he can boast in nothing in himself, but he can and does boast in Christ. It's the same reason why when the Phillies win, I can say without a hint of irony, I'll say, we won last night. We didn't last night, but you know what I mean. (laughs) But I can say we. I didn't do anything, but they did it for me. I'm a fan. And likewise, we can cheer what Jesus says here because he has conquered our enemy in a decisive victory and he did it for us as one of us. And now do you see what it means when we say Jesus is Lord? He has all the power and all the authority and you know what he's going to do with it? He's going to fix everything. And death itself is going to start working backwards. And what that means for the mission is that he will lead the charge for us because he's been given authority over every nation on earth. Every door has been opened and our enemies should be very afraid. And that, beloved, is why we should fix our eyes on him. There's a funny trick in the Greek grammar here because in this sentence in English, he, kinda, he ends with the given to me, right? But in the Greek sentence formation, that clause comes first. It basically reads as given to me is all authority on heaven and on earth. It's bad English, but it places the focus on him in the Greek. His first words to his disciples, practically, is to stop navel-gazing and staring at each other. It's not about you. You're not the hero of the story. Don't look at the team. Don't look at yourselves. Look at me. I won. I have the authority now, and I did it on your behalf. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2. He says, when you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Beloved, Jesus doesn't just win. He embarrasses the enemy. And he does it for us. He disarmed the false authorities and takes the power back for us. And because Jesus is our friend, his authority is not something scary, but something that is a comfort to us. 
And that's why he came partway down the mountain. Do you see the beauty of the moment now? He doesn't pronounce his lordship from on high. He announces it down on our level, face to face. And we can honestly say, we won. (laughs) Because mankind's losing streak is over now. Matthew doesn't mention a high five here, but it wouldn't have been out of place. Beloved, we have a really cool savior. He did all the heavy lifting, but we get to share in the glory because he's one of us and he put us on his back and he takes us to glory. He's the new Moses, but he's so much better because Moses only got him to the doorstep of the promised land. Jesus comes, marches right on in there, conquers it, and then comes back to get us. That's what the resurrection means. It means we have a relatable hero who will take us to glory. He has all the authority. He comes near to us and he will be with us to the end of the age. That's the hope of the gospel, and it's also why we can get excited about the Great Commission. Amen? So let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. Boy, what a cool Savior. Lord, I don't think we, any of us can possibly begin to really wrap our heads around what it means that he became man, that he became one of us. We can barely believe it. We can't believe what he's accomplished. It's wild. It's beyond our wildest dreams. We thank you that he has earned all of this, Lord, and yet still is not ashamed to call us brothers and friends to come down to our level and talk to us. We thank you for all that he's accomplished. And we pray that his kingdom would grow, Lord, as we know it will. And we want to be a part of it. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us, Lord, as individuals, as a church. And also, Lord, as the church universal. As we pursue this mission, this great commission that you have given us. And we thank you because you have given him the authority and the power to do it. Help us to follow our commander. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. i